Hello from Pacifica Radio in San Francisco. This is Flashpoints. I'm Dennis Bernstein. Today on the show, mainstream media opposes military aggression unless the U.S. is doing it. Also, immigrant rights advocates continue to urge the Biden administration to take decisive action to uphold the rights of migrant victims of family separation with full reparations and restorative justice. A lot more on that, on other issues as well. Coming up, stay tuned. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Uh, again, we're having a few technical problems. Hopefully, this is going to work out. Uh, joining us now is Camilo Perez Bustillo. Uh, he is a visiting professor of human rights and social justice uh, at uh, the... National Taiwan University's College of Law. He is a member of Witness at the Border, and he is on the front lines in terms of uh, image, uh, uh, immigrant rights, and uh, justice. Uh, Camilo Perez Bastillo, welcome back to Flashpoints. Camilo? Camilo Bastillo, can you hear us? All right, uh, Mike, nothing is coming through here. I'm not hearing Camillo. So we're going to take a short musical break and we're going to figure this out, okay? Hi, Dennis. All right, I think uh, we are now joined by Camilo Perez Bastillo. Are you there, Camilo? Hello? Camilo, can you hear me? Yes, now I can hear you perfect. Okay, terrific. Sorry about that. Uh, some no technical problem. problems. Um, it's good to have you back with us. Uh, you are knowledgeable more than anybody else I know in this world in terms of the nature of migration, forced migrations, uh, human rights violations in the middle of forced migrations coming out of uh, war uh, attacks, uh, civilians forced into the war zone. You want to give us uh, your thoughts on what's going on? Clearly, um, Putin... Uh, and his actions in Ukraine are violent and anti-human and unacceptable. Uh, but uh, there's a lot more to say about it, isn't there? Absolutely, Dennis. Especially when we see the the disparate treatment that refugees get in different contexts. You know how how all of a sudden now there is this huge outpouring in Europe, in the U.S of consciousness about and support for the refugees fleeing Ukraine. And that is just and right. And those doors should be opened and those arms should be open. But we also see how that's been selective in practice, that not everyone fleeing Ukraine has gotten the same treatment. And so there's already there a layer of filtering of discrimination specifically 
of African and Arab families that have been fleeing Ukraine as well, who were residing there, who don't have Ukrainian citizenship or belong to mixed families and have been turned away or put on different lists or in any case given less welcoming treatment. But in addition to that, there's the way in which the conflict in Ukraine itself is being characterized and framed by the global media and by global public opinion somehow as, as a conflict of a different character that people should identify with compared with other conflicts that should be turned away, let's say, in our imagination, in our hearts, whether it's in Yemen or in Palestine or the Kurdish struggle or, or the conflict that continues in Colombia, my homeland, everything that produces mass forced migration in Central America, which is the continuing effects of the armed conflicts there. So the, the, there are different standards being applied to what should be understand, understood as the same kinds of situations. Now, we have seen some of the most aggressive and vicious treatment of refugees, people forced out of their homelands, um, particularly uh, what's been happening at the U.S.-Mexico border and in the nature of U.S. immigration policies, the treatment of the Haitians, if we saw, if 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 we saw, the the Russians um, treating the Ukrainians, and then how do we? I don't know. I'm getting lost, and it makes me so angry because the the brutality that the United States has put against Haitians and and Africans who have uh, been fleeing it. it is is just unbelievable. You want to sort of talk a little bit about the sure. the difference and the racism behind it? Absolutely. And I think what's key is it's all happening at the same time. I mean, it's happening if you compare what's going on at the borders of Ukraine. Again, who gets in, who gets out, and how they're welcomed and how they're treated. That's one layer. Then even within Europe, at the same time as the Ukrainians are being welcomed, Arab and African migrants are being turned away. Literally in the last few days, knocking on the doors of Europe, for example, between Spain and Morocco, and being beaten up and dragged away and turned back, pushed back. The same thing is going on in the Aegean Sea and the islands between Greece and Turkey, both of them, of course, NATO members, by the way, right there at the periphery of Ukraine. So you don't have to go very far. But then let's compare what's going on in terms of the welcoming, whether it's in the EU or in the US of Ukrainians. One of the first things, and they did it quick, and they did it efficiently, and they did it effectively, that DHS did, Department of Homeland Security in the U.S. did, that's in charge of migration policy at the border, was grant what's called temporary protected status to Ukrainians. Again, the right thing, the just thing, the correct response. The problem is it's only for them. Meanwhile, Cameroonians are still waiting, and we've talked about them and the rap and the torture in your interview with Sarah Towley, my colleague, and we know what the response has been to Haitians. Not only is there no 
temporary protected status as to Haitians, they have been sent back in the largest numbers at the highest rate of any other group since Mexicans in the 1950s. And most of it in the last six months, and especially since the upsurge at Del Rio at the border when we saw the Border Patrol officers on horseback using their reins as whips, corralling Haitians. That image remains at the same time, the same authorities in the U.S. are welcoming Ukrainians. So that's the outrage. In other words, it's clear that this migration policy system can work when the group is adequately recognized and its suffering is embraced and their needs are welcomed and want to be attended to. But when the group is not recognized because of race, because of ethnicity, because the U.S. has a different relation to the conflict that's unfolding, then there's no recognition and people are turned back and people die. I mean, literally in Europe, as we speak, one group is being rescued, Ukrainian citizens specifically, not just people fleeing Ukraine, but specifically if they have Ukrainian passports. But if they're fleeing from Ukraine and are the wrong color or the wrong ethnicity or the wrong nationality, they're turned back or put on a different list. And meanwhile, they exclude others. We're speaking with uh, Camilla Perez Bustillo, and we're talking about the the way in which different uh, uh, immigrants and refugees and those applying for asylum in this world are treated. Now, there's been a big debate about you know this thing about oh, um, there are no fascists. There are no extreme right wings. There were a few of them in one uh, group within the military. But the fact is that the current heroic president cut a deal with the fascists. And that's why they have a particular sway within the country. And that's why I believe in part black people are being taken off these trains and brutally we've heard about whippings and beatings. And this, I believe, is come out of that marriage of convenience uh, between the current, the former comedian, current president and uh, and the fascists. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely consistent. I mean, it shouldn't surprise us. And again, it's the nature of the regime. So, yeah, it's a heroic regime in its resistance and, you know, all of the different ways it's positioned itself in the global media and, you know, the Zelensky's address to the European Union's parliament and, you know, his way of using media to shape his image. That's all fine. But the problem is what lies behind it in, ter in terms of what you're describing, the alliances he's making and, and the failure to stand up for everyone fleeing Ukraine on the same basis. That's the problem. All right. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, the situation. I know that everybody is concerned about what's happening in the in Ukraine, and that is important. But we're talking about 
you know, the entire country of Haiti being turned upside down. We're talking about the deportation in the most violent way of folks uh, back to their homelands without even a chance of asylum. Where does that where is that going? Uh, what kind of um, what kind of news is there around in terms of the treatment? What's that, like the border has disappeared. Immigration reform has disappeared. The suffering doesn't exist. Where where is that struggle now? Does anybody still care, or is that now going to be forgotten by Biden? Uh, the way it was uh, forgotten by Obama and you name it and Trump and whatever. Yeah, I think what's really important is the way you're framing it. <clears throat> which is the suffering that's recognized and which is the suffering that's denied? Who is considered worthy and who is not? That's what migration policy is all about. Who gets in, who gets turned away? And in the Western Hemisphere, migration policy is still driven primarily under the Biden administration as it was under the Trump administration and previous administrations as a function of the Monroe Doctrine and of the assumption that the U.S. is the legitimate hegemonic power, dominant power in the Americas, in the Western Hemisphere, and everything else flows from that. So migration policies aligned and adjusted to fit that overall framework, that overall mold. That means that certain migrants, certain groups fleeing certain countries get preferences and get welcomed and others don't. And so Haitians don't get welcomed. Historically, of course, since the Cuban Revolution, Cubans were favored. Now it's not even so clear. That's also kind of on the edges. But what we know is that meanwhile, what will happen is people will continue to come, even if they're turned away in the way Haitians have been turned away in the tens of thousands, in thousands of flights over the last year. And so what we see is more and more Haitians are turning to the most dangerous ways of coming, which are indirect. Instead of coming heading north, they initially head south and then work their way up through Latin America all the way from Brazil, from Chile, through Colombia, Panama, the Darien Gap, and then into Central America, instead of a more direct route, but also more and more by sea rather than by land in the boats that first gave us the, the labeling of Haitians in the 1980s as boat people, at the same time as people were fleeing in similar ways from Vietnam. Vietnamese got in for obvious reasons, and obviously the U.S. owes reparations to the Vietnamese people. They should have gotten in, and they should get special treatment. But Haitians and Haiti have also been devastated by U.S. policy, but were denied the same benefits. That has continued essentially unchanged since the 1980s. It was before anyone else, it was Haitian migrants who were detained in Guantanamo. The origin of Gitmo, the origin of the Guantanamo detention camp now, where there are still 70 people being held without trial since 2002. We just observed the 20th anniversary of that torture and detention camp. That camp began with the detention of Haitians. So those policies have a continuity that transcends everything else. 
And then we just have to look at what the treatment has been of people fleeing Central America, specifically El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala, and the way in which they've been systematically turned away in the last few years, in the hundreds of thousands, the millions that have been turned away using this mechanism called Title 42, using the pandemic as a pretext, and we should talk about where that stands right now. And the bottom line is it's used selectively and it's used to punish certain groups and to reward others. And so what it all goes back to is the assumption that U.S. domination of this hemisphere is legitimate, but somehow Russian domination of its periphery is not. I, you know... I did a deck of cards called the Friendly Dictator Trading Cards, and I studied one government after another in which the United States interfered and oftentimes propped up dictators and extreme right-wingers who destroyed their country, who killed their own people, supported, trained, supervised by U.S. Inti- you know, there, there is a traffic jam between my heart and my, my brain, Camillo, because I think of all these installed dictators all the way up to Hillary Clinton forcing, undermining, sustaining the, the coup in Honduras and then forcing her own, creating a phony process and forcing her own leadership into Honduras. And what did that what did that give us? She supported a drug dealer for president and uh, the democracy disappeared. It's unbelievable the suffering that came from Hillary Clinton, from her specific, you know, she bragged about that in her autobiography. And then in the next edition, they took it out because it didn't look good. I'm not making this up, right, Camille? I'm not making this up. No, not at all. And, 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 you know, recently, you know, she was comparing the success of the Afghan insurgency, which is, of course, where 9-11 came from, right, which is where Osama bin Laden came from, the supposed success of that insurgency and saying the U.S. should do the same now in Ukraine. She was actually using that analogy in a proactive way. So that's where she's at. But it's, let's talk very specifically right now about Latin America Colombia, my homeland, one of the most repressive regimes in the world, President Duque, is about to meet on March 10th with Biden to seal the deal in terms of continuing U.S. military and security assistance to Colombia, supposedly as part of the drug war, supposedly as part of the war against terror, when what that has done is seed and promote terror by presidents like Duque himself. And not only that, Colombia's been enlisted as one of about a dozen other countries in the world that are considered special partners of NATO beyond the European theater. So we know that since Afghanistan in 2001, NATO has been a global player. We know that NATO was crucially involved, for example, right there in the European periphery in Libya in 2011, but also throughout the U.S. occupation. The U.S. occupation of Afghanistan was also a NATO operation and, and uh, 
policy. And the same thing is true. The U.S. relationship with Colombia is now within a NATO framework. And what will be discussed on March 10th in that meeting in a couple of days between Biden and Duque, who's the outgoing president, there are presidential elections coming up in Colombia where hopefully his party, his regime, his alignment will be replaced by a center-left candidate who's currently leading in the polls. But meanwhile, Duque is in fact trying to influence those elections by showing off the embrace from the U.S., so all of this plays out in every single country in the world and in Latin America in terms of the impact of the war between Russia and Ukraine. It's a global impact, and it is also reconfiguring the nature of relations between the U.S. and Latin America and each country. Wow. You know, we'll, we're about out of time. But, but I, I, again, I, you know, we talk about the Haitians— and it's not only how vicious the deportation program is and the, the total denial of the right to apply for asylum is that, again, it is very clear that U.S. policy was about destabilizing, destabilizing Haiti, undermining the, the desire for self-determination by a people who showed that more than many in the world and the so the u.s is responsible of creating a failed state and it really is like you know there is a house on fire people are fleeing and the united states is forcing haitians back into the fire i mean it is unbelievable and the ignorance or the you know the straight out lying in terms of reporters C could they be that stupid that they don't understand this policy about Haiti or they don't know the level of suffering or are they simply willing to get along go along to get along yeah again we shouldn't be surprised you know every time we hear in Latin America that the U.S. and NATO are fighting to defend freedom and democracy on the front line in Ukraine or in Libya or in Afghanistan, all we need to do is look at what that has meant in practice in Latin America in terms of the suffering of millions of people in the name of freedom and democracy that's been essentially reduced to the national security interests of the U.S. and free trade. That's what's going on in Central America, in Haiti, in Colombia. It's the same story repeated over and over again. So when we hear that the U.S. is defending freedom and democracy, we reach for our wallet or we reach for our gun because we know that this is a lie that's been propagated again and again. That takes nothing away from the defense of the rights of the Ukrainian people to self-determination and freedom. Of course, we have to support that. And if anything, understand that what the Ukrainians are facing from Russia or the Taiwanese from China, if it comes to that, is the same kind of attempts at domination that we've experienced recurrently in Latin America. And we have to understand when everybody's talking now about <clears throat> war crimes, as they should, in Ukraine, and they want to take Ukraine to the International Criminal Court, 
who are the outlaws in the world, whoever doesn't belong to the International Criminal Court? Who are the leading countries in the world that don't belong, that don't accept the jurisdiction of that court? The U.S., Russia, and China. That should not surprise us. So they're, in effect, the global outlaws. And it's not surprising that they're going to try to violate human rights in their domains of power. That means we have to call them all out in the same terms and hold them to the same standards and stand up for the resistance of people everywhere against that kind of domination. All right, we're going to leave it right there, Camillo. As always, uh, we appreciate the incredibly good information coming to us from Camillo Perez Bastillo. He's a visiting professor of human rights and social uh, justice at the National Taiwan University College of Law. He works with a wonderful group, Witness at the Border. You want to check that out if you want to know more uh, about which we are talking. Um, please stay safe, Camillo. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Dennis. It's great to connect. My best regards to everybody. Thank you. Okay, you're welcome. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. I'm going to skip the music break because we're running late. And uh, I want to get our next guest on because it goes directly to what we're talking about in terms of how and what the media uh, covers. And uh, we are really uh, delighted to have with us uh, Jeff Cohen. Uh, Cohen is co-founder of RootsAction.org, a retired journalism professor at Ithaca College, author of Cable News, Confidential, My Misadventures in the Corporate Media. In uh, 1986, he founded the Media Watch Group Fair. Jeff Cohen, uh, welcome back to Flashpoints. It is good to have you with us. Uh, I just read, I think that's why I'm, I'm beside myself, as they say, because I just read your article and it reminded me about the nature of media and how uh, they're not just complicit, they're actors, they're players in the game of censorship. I, I, you know, it blows my mind, Jeff, to have uh, somebody like Nicole Wallace doing two hours in the middle of the day, and I think she was the communications director for the second Bush, lying about the wars and the torture and the whatever. Uh, But do you want to sort of set this up you know, in terms of h- how well the corporate media knows what to, what to say and when to shut up. Yeah, I, uh, I wrote this column because watching the TV news coverage today of the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, certain themes and issues are being drummed on, and they should be the center stage, the prominence of civilian toll, the civilian neighborhoods that are being terrorized because cruise missiles are dropping. For the first time, remember, the United States has been involved in aggressive war decade after decade. I started FAIR, what, 35 years ago. And it's almost been a constant state of war started by U.S. in various parts of the globe. But this is the first week, the first two weeks, where uh, an aggressive war has happened and the U.S. mainstream media is making civilian casualties and civilian terror the central story. And it should be the central story. In modern warfare, the toll taken on civilians 
is the main story. But as you know, Dennis, I worked inside cable news during the beginning of the war on so-called war on terror. I was at MSNBC during the run-up to the invasion of Iraq. And when I was on the inside during those the invasion of Afghanistan, and then I was terminated shortly before the invasion of Iraq, everyone understood, if you worked at cable news, that the last thing you make front and center is the civilian victims of the U.S. military. And so that's why it's dizzying for me to be watching cable news day after day today and see for the first time that a military aggression is happening. Uh, Russia, a powerful country against a far weaker country, Ukraine. And we are seeing the civilian toll. We're seeing the images of it. We're hearing about it. They're counting the numbers. And remember, uh, I mean, the kinds of phrases that I'm hearing today uh, about the NBC News did a report uh, saying it's a mark of growing savagery from the Russian invasion that they are using cluster bombs. And NBC News said that the United States had not deployed cluster bombs since the Gulf War in 1991. Well, NBC News was wrong by about 18 years and five different wars. The U.S. deployed cluster bombs in Bosnia, in Serbia, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in Yemen in 2009. And a few years ago, Human Rights Watch reported that U.S. made and deployed and and exported cluster bombs were being used by the Saudis in their war against Yemen just a few years ago. So you're, you're seeing, I think, correctly a description of savagery, a description of aggressive war, a description of a lot of pretext being used to justify war. But we never heard those phrases. I'm hearing David Muir on ABC News, this unprovoked war over and over. But, you know, Iraq, when the U.S. invaded on false pretenses that the mainstream media promoted, whether it was television news, the front pages of the New York Times, the opinion and editorial pages of the Washington Post, the so-called liberal press. Uh, They were complicit in these pretexts for war. And even a few years after the Iraq invasion, you still never heard an objective news reporter or anchor uh, talking about Bush's or Cheney's pretext for war. But we keep hearing about the pretext for war today. So I'm a little stunned. Uh, I've never seen anything like it. I like the fact that civilian toll is the essential part of the story, but it's utter hypocrisy. And I should say, Dennis, you know, there are the civilian toll and the terror that people are feeling in Ukraine cities because of these uh, these modern weapons, the cruise missiles uh, dropping on their in their neighborhoods. Shock and awe, which was the U.S. bombing of Baghdad at the beginning of the invasion, the estimates are that several, on average, several hundred people every day, civilians, were killed. And in the first few weeks, you had uh, about 7,000 uh, 7, 
civilians killed in just the first three weeks. And because the mainstream media never centered, never made prominent the civilian deaths in Iraq, we have pollsters a few years after the invasion happened, U.S. invasion of Iraq, asking the United States public, how would you estimate how many civilians have died, uh, uh, killed in the Iraq war? And, you know, the median answer in one poll was 5,000 civilian deaths in Iraq. Well, in fact, in the first few weeks, because of the vicious shock and awe bombing, the U.S. had killed far more than that, even in the first few weeks. But the U.S. public never got the news. And, and you know, let me make one last point on this. When the U.S. invaded Afghanistan, a memo, a couple memos were circulated by top CNN management to every single news anchor and correspondent at CNN, basically telling them that they should downplay any civilian killings in Afghanistan. They should rationalize it. They were told that any time there was a reference to civilian toll underneath the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan, they had to immediately remind their audience, quote, these U.S. military actions are in response to a terrorist attack that killed thousands of innocent people in the United States, unquote. Now, this was a few weeks after 9-11. Who'd forgotten it? Uh, one of CNN's memos about downplaying, rationalizing, excusing civilian deaths in Afghanistan, one of the memos said, even though it may start sounding rote, it's important that we make this point each and every time, unquote. Uh, that's the difference in, uh, in uh, civilians are being covered today. And I would argue this is, this is the way it should always be, whether it's the U.S. that's the aggressor or whether it's Putin and Russia. And, you know, the United States, uh, particularly in Iraq, made it a point to take out crucial infrastructure, the, 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 the water filtration system, things uh, that caused the death, we understand, of thousands of children, young people, that we bombed the electric grid, that we essentially purposely shut down uh, uh, that country. You know, you remember they talked about we're going to bomb it into the Stone Age? Well, that's what they were trying yep. to do. And remember, um, in both Serbia and Iraq, uh, there was the effort to knock out communications towers, even those in civilian areas where they would often take out civilians. And uh, this time, when Russia bombed the communication towers in Ukraine, it was, again, a sh uh, it was the, quote, proof that Russia is moving from hitting military to civilian targets. You never heard that kind of explanation. You never heard that kind of accusation when the U.S. was doing uh, the very same thing. And, you know, it's not just in the heat of battle. You know, it wasn't just when the U.S. first invaded Afghanistan, first invaded Iraq and killed so many civilians. Twenty years later, as the uh, Afghan war is winding down, uh, all of the news media in our country started doing these sort of summing up. Uh, Lester Holt, last April, I worked with him at MSNBC. He's now the anchor of NBC Nightly News. He gave his summing up report 
Um, 20 years, he called it, quote, America's longest war. And he gave one and only one figure about the human toll. He said, quote, there have been 2,300 American deaths, unquote. And there was no mention in this summing up report of 20 years of warfare and occupation of the civilian toll uh, uh, faced by, uh, uh, suffered by Afghans. And, uh, you know, we we know at minimum 70,000 Afghan civilians died. We know from a recent United Nations study that in the first six months of 2019, the, there were more civilians in Afghanistan killed by the United States and its allies than by the horrific Taliban and their allies. So, but there was no room in these reports, these summing up reports about America's longest war, to address the civilian toll, even that. Wow. What, what else? We're just about out of time, but what else do you think is crucial? So many things uh, come to mind uh, in this context, yeah. Jeff, but w- w- what do you want to leave us with here? Well, I want people to contact, you know, uh, FAIR.org uh, has been raising these issues. FAIR.org blew the whistle on NBC when they got it completely wrong about the U.S. Uh, and cluster bombs. There is an organized effort to uh, contact mainstream media. Obviously, the main thing that activists need to do is support independent media, support flashpoints, support KPFA. But I do believe that there is a role, especially in times of crises, for progressive activists to uh, do that kind of aggressive outreach and making demands on mainstream media, yes. It's good that you're putting front and center civilians in this war of aggression. Let's talk about what the U.S. has done in other countries. I mean, I'm thinking uh, I see Hillary Clinton talking about democracy and human rights. She's been all over the news uh, since the uh, crisis in Ukraine began a, a few weeks ago. And Hillary Clinton was the secretary of state when the coup in Honduras happened. And she is, we were the only government, it's President Obama, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, we were the only country in the Western Hemisphere that did not immediately denounce a military coup against an elected government. And it was because of the United States and Hillary Clinton that that coup regime stayed in place. So to see her talking about human rights and democracy, you know, it, it makes me sick to my stomach. And I'm, I think that the demand to be made on mainstream media is we want to see victims of military aggression, victims of military coup, whether they're Iraqi, whether they're Honduran, or whether they're Ukrainian, they should all be front and center. It shouldn't just be when the Russians are the villains. All right. Jeff Cohen, uh, as always, uh, great work at Roots Action, wonderful uh, analysis of the media. His book is Cable News Confidential, My Misadventures in Corporate Media. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks a lot for joining us today. Thanks for what you do, Dennis. Bye-bye.
Thank you. Thank you. And you are listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Uh, We're going to take a short break. I'm going to have to stick my head in some cold water because I am burning up. We'll be back in about 90 seconds. Stay with us. experiences in order to expose the crimes that I grew up under. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman. And I'm Asa Winstanley. Welcome back to the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman. Today, we're talking to Shahid Abu Salama about the situation she just experienced as an activist and assistant lecturer at Sheffield Hallam University in the north of England. Shahid is also a longtime contributor to the Electronic Intifada. In late January, as we reported, the university suspended Shahid from her position amid a smear campaign by supporters of Israel. Administrators launched an investigation following a complaint over her social media posts, which criticized Israel and its state ideology, Zionism. But following a massive support campaign and public outcry, the university reinstated her a week later. Shahid did not initially accept the reinstatement offer, demanding that the investigation be dropped first, as it was prompted by malicious smears and bolstered by the IHRA so-called definition of anti-Semitism, which is regularly used by Israel lobby groups to smear and censor supporters of Palestinian rights by conflating criticism of Israel with anti-Jewish bigotry. On February 3rd, the university dropped its investigation and offered her a more secure contract. She has resumed teaching her classes. However, the university still has not released details on who or which groups filed the complaint against Shahid. And the smears are still coming. Just a few days ago, the Jewish Chronicle, a far-right publication which has targeted Shahid and countless other Palestinian activists before, published a statement by a Zionist group on campus accusing the university of fostering a, quote, hostile environment for Jewish students. Joining us to talk about what happened and how she's continuing to fight back is Shahid Abu Salama and her lawyer, Giovanni Fasina at the European Legal Support Center. Shahid and Giovanni, thank you so much for being with us in the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thank you so much for having us. So first off, Shahid, this has been a total whirlwind for you for the last uh, three or four weeks. I encourage our readers and viewers to go back through the reports I wrote about your case, uh, where they can find many of the details. We'll put that uh, those links up on the blog post that accompanies this. 
But in your own words, tell us about the significance of the university dropping its investigation against you and why you were targeted by supporters of Israel in the first place. Uh, I think I should uh, answer the later question before the first. So uh, I am targeted um, for simply being Palestinian. I am just speaking about my experiencing uh, my, my experiences under um, Israel's um, oppressive structures and uh, and the realities that that anyone from Gaza would would be able to understand and um, I'm sorry. Maria. Not feeling well. It's okay. Take your time. It's just it's just because I came I just came back from teaching, and and that was a bit triggering to be honest. Just being back at the university with everything that's happened. Yeah. So um. I'm only utilizing my voice, my, my words, my experiences in order to expose the crimes that I grew up under and, and demand accountability for them. And justice is long overdue for the Palestinians. I was born with this burden, with the cause, a cause of my grandparents who were uprooted from their lands. My great grandfather was shot as he stood by a tree and, and my grandparents waited in refugee camps in Jabalia, specifically north of Gaza um, all their lives basically waiting to return when this right was barred due to racist ideologies and practices. Some of my grandparents actually tried to return, but they were shot at. And we know that 5,000 people, 5,000 Palestinians, simply refugees were who were trying to go back to their lands between 1948 and 1956. They were shot just for returning to their lands, shot dead. And this is to reinforce Israel's colonial borders. And I grew up in, in Gaza, in the world's largest open air prison that was made at such due to these colonial borders that separated us from our original lands, villages that we grew up hearing about from our grandparents, and they're completely actually erased and new developments are made on top of them. Of course, this is part of, of covering their act of memory side against the Palestinians. And and we sit so close and they sit so close holding up to this 
to, to, that, to the land, to this feeling that they had at those times and they never had ever since. They were dispossessed and demeaned and um, subjugated under military occupation. And I was born into an occupation. And, and you could imagine the, uh, the motivations of such a lived experience that would make me vocal in any um, possible way trying to expose these things that the, the international community failed to act upon. We are living in a reality where Palestine continues to be the exception to the rule, as Israel is continuing to be treated as a state above law. And, and racism is increasingly um, not tolerated except when it's practiced against the Palestinians. And, and this is why, to be honest, whenever I think of what I've just experienced, um, it, it comes back, not just the treatment of, uh, of the university, I, you know, it's not only that that comes back to the surface as if it just happened, but my whole life, literally, just, you know, it, it crushes bef before my eyes because I understand this as part of this historical pattern that insists on dehumanizing the Palestinians and that I insist on resisting. I was silenced by uh, the Zionist uh, press with unfounded accusations of anti-Semitism for simply speaking about the Palestinian people's right to freedom, justice, and equality, and return to their dispossessed lands. And I wasn't even given a chance to provide my side of story. And the Zionist narrative immediately uh, took more legitimacy than my existence and my story. And I am their staff member. I'm a module leader. I'm not a teaching assistant. I'm a module leader. I'm, uh, and I have 30 students um, that I'm responsible for. And the university is responsible for them as well, not just for me. And for the university to disrupt my life and disrupt the uh, education of its paying students um, and capitulate to uh, Zionist pressure, that just shows that colonialism is not over and colonial culture, imperial culture is, um, is very contemporary. It's, it is the reason why people like George Floyd would be um, shot dead 
without a second thought, or Iyad Halla would be shot dead just because he didn't answer back. And, and it's a reason why, as well, we don't hear in the news that Sheikh Jarrah, for example, is undergoing uh, a physical erasure and, and ethnic cleansing is, is happening right now as we speak. And settlers are invading people's, our people's towns and, and neighborhoods, threatening them to burn them alive. And they, they shout in the middle of the streets, dead to Arabs, shamelessly. If an Arab says something similar, we would immediately be scandalized on all front lines. But, but because the perpetrator here is Israel, they can enjoy doing that with immunity, knowing that the world will just uh, let it go. But we are, we are fighting to reclaim our narrative, to call things as they are, and to disrupt these processes that contribute to our dehumanization and the violence enacted on us in, in both military and discursive ways. Thank you, Noga. Thank you, Shahid. Um, Giovanni, uh, you and your colleagues at the European Legal Support Center um, track violations of civil rights um, in, in cases such as Shahid's. Can you walk us through the, the potential violations that Sheffield Hallam University um, could, have, uh, could have made in their kind of reflexive decision to not just suspend Shahid at the beginning, but also launch an investigation without telling Shahid or her legal team who had filed the complaints, uh, the nature of the complaints themselves. Um, can, can, you, can you talk about what happened from a legal point of view? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, of course, uh, the, we are of the opinion that the fact that the university have decided to not, uh, you know, investigate Shahad at the end, you know, they haven't breached any, uh, any law or any policy. Uh, anyway, uh, I mean, um, I must say that this is uh, a common uh, praxis from uh, the university to act like that because the, the policies of the university when it comes to uh, disciplinary proceedings, uh, yeah, indeed, unfortunately, they allow uh, them to not reveal the name of a complainant uh, and are very vague and, and drafted in very generic manner. So, so, so it is not stated very clearly that they have to provide immediately what the allegations are. So the, the, whole, proced the whole procedure is, is, is uh, I would say, it's regulated in a very, very broad manner. Okay. 
they are not very specific, okay? That uh, the, the potential investigation, the, an investigation against Shahad would have restricted her ability to fully enjoy her right to freedom of expression. So we were claiming a violation of freedom of expression in the sense of freedom to impart information, okay? And we were considering that that, that would have been unlawful and that would, would have been an arbitrary, arbitrary interference with her freedom of expression. And also, um, the, uh, the start of an investigation could can could have constitute also a form of unlawful direct discrimination on grounds of uh, uh, philosophical belief, uh, uh, meaning uh, anti-Zionism uh, as a form indeed of uh, philosophical belief, uh, and also race and religion. So, as a Palestinian uh, Muslim. And also potentially a form of unlawful indirect discrimination. Uh, direct discrimination means uh, uh, when 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 you are setting, uh, 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 I would say, uh, let's say, an, an environment where, uh, uh, like, you adopt a specific policy that uh, that at the end uh, uh, targets a specific group of, of people. In this case, it would target uh, anti-Zionists, but also uh, Palestinians. Uh, so that could potentially be. Uh, some these are the are some arguments we 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 made, um, but what is particularly concerning is uh, uh, I mean what was uh, what happened is really illustrative on how the AIDS ray has been really used to to silence uh, lawful speech on Palestine and how this contributes to chilling effect. Uh, for us, it's important to to stress that in the last two years we have been providing support to dozens of academics and students across the UK would be subjected to investigations based on inflammatory allegations of anti-Semitism because of what they tweeted or posted on social media. Uh, and, you know, the crazy thing was that in most of these cases, like all these social media were, were um, uh, social media posts were made even before these people were enrolled in university or before they were working. Uh, so, and this show, you know, that the complainants were literally going on your profile and scrolling it all over and see what they can find, which show kind of malicious intent, in our opinion. Um, and, and, and also in all these cases, the complainants were using the HRA when making the complaints because the university just adopted the definition, uh, you know. Um, and 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 uh, uh, and so because they just adopted the definition, and we're speaking mainly also about one year ago, you know there was a lot of confusion, and universities still didn't know what to do with this definition.